0: Good morning. So, yeah, over, over about the last couple of months, I've been praying a lot about where, where we should go next after after First John. You know, we just we just finished last time, and yeah, you know, we've gone through uh, Philippians, we've gone through First Peter, we went through First John last summer. This time, we went through some Psalms, and um, yeah, but I feel like we need to look into the Gospels, uh, but also. You know, maybe maybe the Old Testament. I'd like to do a series on perhaps one of the minor prophets. So, yeah, I was kind of struggling with where to go. So I I asked a couple guys, um, and uh, one of them said, why don't you do a series on the uh, Sermon on the Mount? I think that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. So, Tom, wherever you are, thank you. That was a a great idea. Uh, That's what we're going to do. And so, uh, you know, today's today's sermon is just an introduction to the uh, Sermon on the Mount. There's there's a lot in this uh, three chapters. I think it's three chapters, five, six, and seven. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll start out just by way of introduction, talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, also the the law, and uh, we'll get into a a few of the uh, the beatitudes today, also, uh, in, in this introduction. And um, you know, we—it's it's good to talk about who who Jesus is talking to in this uh, in this teaching. You know, I've I've heard a lot of people say a lot of different things to to that regard. In that regard, uh, I've I've heard some people say, "Well, this is uh, still Old Testament." You know that uh, it, it this is law. This is really not written to us. I don't agree with that position that it's not written to us. I've also heard people say, "Well, this this only applies to uh, living in the uh, the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom." And uh, though that's that's true, I don't think we can say only either. Uh, let's look at some background, and uh, we'll we'll talk a little about it. We'll we'll be talking about the kingdom. We'll be talking about the law throughout the the series we're just going to have a real brief uh, we'll just briefly touch on it but let's look at some background a chapter back in chapter 3 of Matthew you know Jesus begins his ministry and his ministry was inaugurated when uh, John the Baptist baptized him we're all familiar with with that story in Matthew 3 16 through 17 uh, I, I, I love this this beautiful scene it's you know, we, we, we see the, the Godhead here. We see the Father and the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 3.16 says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, in uh, chapter 4, Jesus calls the, uh, the first of his disciples, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the the son of Debit, uh, Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with the, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their their boat and their father and, and followed him. And uh, you know, we th- this this gospel narrative progresses real. Seems like it's really quick. And all of a sudden, in in chapter four, verse twenty three, we read that uh, Jesus had really amassed quite a following uh, verse 23 is as, as he went throughout galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so his fame spread throughout all syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons those having seizures and paralytics and and he healed him and the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so that's kind of the uh, the, the backdrop to this to this uh, teaching that that Jesus did. Jesus had selected some some disciples and as he started doing these these signs and wonders, crowds started following him. Of course they did They're, this was some pretty amazing stuff. You know, I'm sure that, you know, word of mouth could travel pretty fast. You know, uh, come see this guy. He's he's bringing sight to the blind and, and healing lame people and, and so forth. So chapter five, where we have the Sermon on the Mount begins. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down and his disciples came to him. So who's he teaching here? The disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is is for Jesus's disciples, his followers, and um, you know the, this 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 teaching doesn't so much concern how we are saved. And the danger that we run into when we when we read the Sermon on the Mount is that we might. Uh, give into a a moralism which which says you know we we need to clean up our act we need to do better we need to follow the law even better than they did in the old testament but we need to follow the law in order to come to god we've got it we've got to be really good and uh, you know another danger is that we might see jesus merely as a teacher now he was a teacher he, his, his disciples called him rabbi he was he, he taught we We have record of of a lot of his teacher, but his teaching but you know if we see him only as a teacher, as some people do, we uh, neglect to see him as as our savior. Oswald Chambers says that the, the tendency that that tendency is prevalent today and it 's a dangerous tendency. We must know him first as savior. Before his, teacher can, before his teaching can have any meaning to us or before it will have any meaning other than that of an ideal which will lead us to despair. You know, another wrong way to look at the Sermon on the Mount is that it's irrelevant. Some people will say, well, this is, this is law. It doesn't pertain to us in, in this uh, dispensation or under the, the new covenant It's, it's true that we have a hard time following these things. And maybe that's, maybe that's the point. You know, there's, there's no way we can follow Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount on our own. That's why we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves by, by being good. We can't save ourselves by trying to uh, raise ourselves to, to some level by doing better. And so where does it leave us as we we look at this this teaching? The Sermon on the Mount, I'll I'll propose, will show us God's heart for his people, his desire for how we should live. This teaching shows us how those who've who've entered the kingdom should live as, as the people of God. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is it's about the kingdom of God. When we, when we read through the gospel account that Matthew gives us, this word kingdom appears uh, about 50 times. Sometimes it's, it's called the kingdom of God, but Matthew normally calls it the kingdom of heaven. And those, those terms are used synonymously. Matthew is the only gospel writer who, who uses the term kingdom of heaven, and he's writing to Jews. He's writing to them in terms that, that they understand. The other gospel writers are, are also writing to, to Gentiles, and you know, I guess it makes more, more sense for them to call it the, the kingdom of God. But uh, if, we, if we look at Matthew nineteen twenty three through 24, we see these two terms used together synonymously. Uh, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people have made a big deal about, well, maybe they're they're two different things. There was there was a man back uh, around the turn of last century, uh, C.I. Schofield, who came out with a study Bible, and he he built kind of a, his own theology, where he he said these these refer to two different things, and um, that was that was his way of looking at it. I I don't believe that. Um, We'll we'll go that, that direction though in our study. In any case, the, the kingdom is, is central in Jesus' teaching. It's central in, in Jesus' preaching. Since the uh since the kingdom is so prevalent in Matthew and on the Sermon of the Mount, let's let's talk a little bit about what is meant by the term. You know, what what is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? You know, if I say kingdom, I'm I'm referring to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Well, in the widest sense, the wide, widest sense, the kingdom of God is the rule of God over all the universe. You know, it's, it's the the kingship of God who who's eternal, who is uh, sovereign. You know, in all aspects, the the kingdom is centered on something that every kingdom needs, and what is that? A king, yes, the king and, and the king's reign. Uh, the kingdom can refer to the future millennial reign of Christ on earth, you know where, where Jesus will, will reign a thousand years with, with his saints. So that's, that's a narrower view. Definitely something to look forward to. But also the, the kingdom has a, a, a present sense as well. So it has a, a present sense as well as a, a future sense. You know, one, one way of saying this is uh, something I used to hear often at uh, Dallas Seminary, where the kingdom of God is already, not yet. Already, not yet. We, we, we have a glimpse of it. We have a, a manifestation of the kingdom of God because we have our Lord Jesus, King Jesus but we don't see it yet in its fullness, right? Already, not yet. And there's a, there's a spiritual sense by which we can define the kingdom of God. Jesus said, my, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. That's John eighteen thirty six. And the first mention of the kingdom in, in the Gospel of Matthew comes from the, the mouth of John the Baptist. He, he's preaching, he says, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is, is near, the kingdom is approaching. Why is that? Because his job as the, the last Old Testament prophet was to uh, introduce Jesus Christ, King Jesus, as he comes on the scene. That was what his task was to announce the arrival of, of the Messiah, the Christ. And then Jesus comes along and he preaches the same thing. He says, "The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and enter the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven." And Jesus is not introducing a new king or a new concept here. Actually, the Old Testament speaks of, of the kingdom. If we look at Psalm 103, starting in verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, his kingdom rules over all. In Daniel 4 3, we, we have Nebuchadnezzar speaking of God. When, he, when, he, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, he says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. And again, this this teaching, this sermon on the mount, is about the kingdom. And uh, so we we can't walk through this text without a, a, approaching this this topic as we will. You know, another thing to keep in mind is is the law. How do how do we look at the law? You know, as we as we look at this this teaching we see that uh, Jesus is is setting straight what the law is all about you know god had god had given the law to his people and his people had always failed in some way they've all they'd always fallen short and failed to obey the law and uh you know the, the lesson is that we really on our own it's it's impossible for us to live the law it's impossible for us to be fully obedient. We'll, we'll we'll fail every time. And and God has said so. If we if we look in Psalm fourteen two to three, He says, "The Lord looks down from heaven, on the children of men, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not even one." And we're going, to, we're going to talk more about the law in a future sermon where, where Jesus says, I, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So you have to come for that sermon uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Now Jesus begins his, his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, with uh, this, this group of short sayings called the, the Beatitudes. That word Beatitude doesn't appear in the, in the text anywhere. What does that mean? Beatitude, everybody knows the word, but I don't know if uh, you've ever really looked it up. This word beatitude, uh, it means, if you look it up in the dictionary, a, a state of utmost bliss. It's bliss, it's happiness, it's sheer delight. If if you look at the website vocabulary.com, I, I kind of like what it says. If you're extraordinarily happy, you might describe what you're feeling as beatitude, The noun beatitude refers to a state of great joy. Being blessed, or at least feeling blessed, is often linked to beatitude. That makes sense. Each each of these verses starts with blessed, blessed are you when some translations say happy, happy are you when and uh, Something to notice in, in the Beatitudes, this, this is not a, a list of imperatives. It's not a list of commands. There, actually, there is, there is one place where we have a, uh, an imperative. It's in verse 12 where it says, Rejoice and be glad. But rather, Jesus is saying, These are the things that mark a good and pleasant life. These are the things that uh, mark a, a life in balance. Uh, a life in perspective, a happy life, if, if you will. This is the good life. It's the it's the life in the kingdom. Uh, Tim Keller notes that the Beatitudes are organized into parts. He says the uh, the first four Beatitudes talk about entering the kingdom, coming to Christ. About the uh, the heart attitude that we need to have in order to uh, receive Jesus and come to Him, and the other is talking about living the the kingdom of life. Oswald Chambers says the first time we read the Beatitudes, they appear to be a, to be simple and beautiful and unstartling statements, and they go unobserved in the subconscious mind. We're so used to the sayings of Jesus that they slip over us unheeded. They sound sweet and pious and wonderfully simple, but they are in reality like spiritual torpedoes that burst and explode in the subconscious mind. And when the Holy Spirit brings them back to our conscious minds, we realize what startling statements they are. And so Jesus begins with, "Blessed are the poor in the the poor in spirit." He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Now, who who are these poor in spirit? What does what does that mean? It's it's the people that lack the reserves and and the resources they need to to live a full life. They are. Uh, They're poor, they're they're deprived of the good life, they they need help. You know, the the resources just are not there to make anything out of their their lives and their efforts at self-help have have just utterly failed. You know, the poor in the spirit are those who admit that they are in need. They've, They've come to the point to where they know that all their efforts of, of living a, a good life fueled by self-will, self-effort, self-righteousness, all these all these resources of self can only fail. This, this is a person who realizes that he or she is spiritually bankrupt. You get the sense of this in Psalm uh, 40, verse 17, where the psalmist just cries out... Um, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh God. You see the, the sense of desperation there, desperation for God. This is the, the cry of, of humility. Pride has been utterly stripped away. The the kingdom of God is for those who realize they don't have the resources to help themselves to stand before God. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can come with empty hands admitting our poverty, our spiritual poverty, and knowing that he's there to help those who are undeserving and, and needy, which is what we are. And uh really our problem, I think, is we have a hard time admitting our spiritual poverty, don't we? We like to say, well, you know, I'm I'm probably better than most people I know. You know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I might I might slip up a little bit. But I go to church, I I perform my religious duties, you know, I'm I think I'm alright. You know, but uh Jesus tells us we need to come to that point where we, we admit we are bankrupt we need him and we don't have the resources on our own we come to him and experience the spiritual riches of his kingdom next jesus talks about those who who mourn those who mourn and what why do people mourn yes you know, there's it's because they've lost something they've experienced some some loss you know we We find ourselves mourning about many things. We might lose a loved one. We might lose our health. We might lose our financial security. We could go on forever. Something of great value is gone. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. And we need to ask ourselves you know do do we mourn about the right things do we do we mourn about our our sinfulness our 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 depraved hearts do we mourn when we see uh this this sin in our lives that that separates us from God you know having that that close intimate relationship with, with our heavenly father or are we self-satisfied, not even uh, realizing our, our condition? First Corinthians seven ten says, "Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret." So, you know, are we are we a people who will mourn our our condition and and repent? It's easy for us to look around and say, you know. These people really need to turn from from their sin. They need to turn to God. But, you know, Jesus is is calling for us to look at our own selves here. You know, let's let's more on our own condition. Let's let's turn from our pride. Let's turn from our sin, which separates us from from God, and turn our hearts to God. And let's let's let God uh, you know give us beauty for ashes. Next, Jesus talks about the meek. Who, who are the meek? He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, this, is, this is really not the way we normally think either, is it? The meek, you know, who, who wants to say, I'm, I'm a meek person? You know, if, I might think, well, if I'm, if I'm meek, people are going to walk all over me. You know, we've been in our culture conditioned to say we we are not meek; we are we are strong. What is meekness? You know, it has to do with our heart. It has to do with our attitude. It has to do with our our outward conduct towards uh, God and, and towards other people. It means to be uh, gentle and humble and and considerate. And not overly impressed with ourselves, you know. A feeling of, of self importance uh, contradicts this this concept of, of meekness. You know what what does it look like to be meek? Let's let's look at some biblical scripture here. Uh, J- James tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Uh, that's James one nine. Paul says we should outdo each other in showing honor. That's Romans twelve ten. Uh, he also says to husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. That's Colossians three nineteen. You kind of get an idea, you know. And we, we conversely, we can say, well, okay, then uh, meekness is is not harsh. It's not prideful. It's not self obsessed. It's not short fused. It's not uh, being out of control. And so, you know, I think there's a misconception about weak, uh, meekness. People think meekness means weakness, and that is not true. I like what Abraham Lincoln said about it. He said that uh, meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. Uh, there's, there's a commentator named uh, Bob Utley who says about meekness, its, it's origin implies domesticated strength, like a, like a well-trained horse. You know, recognizing our need for God makes us humble and teachable and God wants to direct our strengths, not, not break the, our, our strengths. Jesus, Jesus described himself as, as meek. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That translation didn't use the word meek, but lowly. And some other translations are it comes out meek. Yeah, so Jesus models this this meekness for us. Uh, he, he was certainly stronger than those who persecuted him and, and killed him. Right. But he constrained himself, he showed self-constraint, he showed love and, and forgive. he forgave them even as, as they did these, these things to him. Jesus says about the meek, what's the result? They're going to inherit the earth. Uh, his, his disciples would have recognized this from the Old Testament. Psalm 3711 says this, it says... The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You know, Jesus is telling those who are meek that they are going to come into his blessing. They're going to come into his, his promise. And again, these Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount really reveals God's heart for us. This is what he wants us to be. This is, this is a, all these things are a glimpse of, of the image of Christ that we need to be conformed to. Next, Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So, Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is a great promise. Um, what are hunger and thirst? They're, they're natural impulses. They show us that we are, are in need of Something to, to sustain our life, water, food. Uh, our our physical impulses of hunger and, and thirst are uh, natural; they're instinctual. You know, the, the birds that we hear outside they they hunger and thirst. We do, all animals do. But we also, as as people made in the image of God we need him we we have we have a spiritual hunger and thirst it's really more important than our, our physical hunger, hunger and thirst i uh, you know, jesus tells us in the uh, the next chapter matthew chapter 6 verse uh, 33 that you know we shouldn't eat, we shouldn't worry about what we're going to eat and drink and wear right he says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you God's given us a a desire for him, a desire for for his righteousness. Augustine talked about this. He says that um, in in one of his prayers, uh, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Why are we happy? Why are we blessed when we hunger and thirst? Because we've been promised that he'll meet that, he'll fill us. He'll satisfy that, that uh, hunger and thirst. He'll more than satisfy it. You remember the story about when Jesus fed the 5,000? Uh, the this, this word satisfied was, was used in that story too. And it talked about how after all this, the people had eaten and the disciples gathered up the, the scraps, there were 12, twelve baskets left over. maybe maybe each of the, the apostles were pretty hungry after passing out all that food, and it was for for them, 12, one basket each. I don't know. But there was an overflow. There was There was an abundance. You know God is able to to satisfy our hunger and thirst in in that same way. When we hunger for him, he, He's capable of filling us to overflowing. You know, all four of these beatitudes have to do with our heart attitude as we as we come to Christ. You know, we we need to come to Him, realizing that uh, and and admitting our our spiritual poverty. You know, coming to Him in in humility. We need to come to Him in in brokenness and uh, contriteness, mourning our our sinful condition, mourning the fact that we've turned away from Him that we've rejected him time and time again, you know, mourning our, our sinful and, and rebellious state. We need to come to him in, in meekness and lowliness uh, without a sense of uh, self-importance and, and arrogance. We need to come to him with longing, being desperate for him, knowing that nothing else is going to fill us the way he can. And this is the way of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, uh, in in Jesus' name, we pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you you help us to to realize our our depravity, our, our desperateness for you, our, our need for you. Help us, Lord, to uh, realize that there's nothing in us and nothing about us that that makes us worthy on our own to to experience your your presence and and your love lord let your let your kingdom come let it come in our hearts lord jesus reign in our hearts let our let our pride be stripped away lord um lord help us to just realize that that hunger and thirst help us lord to uh just take joy in the abundant life that you came to give us Amen.
1: Let's all stand for our closing song. Jesus is Lord of all. All of my tomorrow, tomorrow all, all my past Jesus, Jesus. is Lord of all. Is all I give, all my possessions and all. I
0: jesus romans eleven thirty three and 36 oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen
1: Uh-huh.